And turning your Bibles to 1 Samuel 9, 8 to 10-year-olds, you're dismissed to your class if you'd like to go there. Welcome to those of you visiting. We've got a number of you this morning. Uh, we are in a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Samuel. And again, our passage is found in chapter 9 and part of chapter 10 this morning, chapter 9 through 10, 16. I've entitled this message, God's Providential Workings. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a, of a lady that heard about uh, a high-end rug shop, and they, they made these fancy rugs, and so she went to see the operation, and she went, and she saw some people working on these rugs, and she thought, there's nothing really special here. And one of the people working on the rug said, that's because you're looking at it backwards. You're on the wrong side. And when the lady saw the other side, she saw how spectacular the work was. Uh, In my mind, I think that that illustrates God's providence in a lot of ways. What in the world is going on here? What's He doing in my life? What's He doing in my family's life? What in the world is He doing? This can't be good. And then you see the other side, if we're allowed to, the side that He controls and what He's doing, and it's actually rather beautiful. Many of you have understood this to be true. You know something's difficult or, or seemingly uncomfortable in your life, and then years later you look back and you say, praise the Lord for that time. Providence is, as someone has said, best understood like the Hebrew alphabet or a Hebrew word. If, I, if you will, a Hebrew word understood backwards. You look backwards and you see the providence of God and you see the caring hand of God, even while in the middle of whatever that ordeal was, it was very uncomfortable and very difficult. Well, in this passage, we see the providence of God at work. It's the providence of God in giving Israel their first king. And I think it's fascinating to see how God works the, the interaction between Saul and Samuel, or even the introduction between Saul and Samuel. I think you'll find this passage fascinating, interesting, and I want you to be sure to see God's hand all the way through it. So again, the title, God's Providential Workings. This is a passage where Saul is introduced to Samuel. They've never met before. In fact, apparently Saul's never even heard of Samuel, which strikes us as, as quite funny because for eight and a half or eight chapters, we've been learning about the prominence of Samuel in this area. But evidently Saul from the tribe of Benjamin didn't know about Samuel. That strikes us as interesting. But God is going to see to it that the first king of Israel, who doesn't know he's going to be king, meets the prophet that he, God, is speaking through. And again, the, the theological theme of the morning is God's providence. And so I'll give you a definition of God's providence. It's the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for His creation. God is not the one who creates the world and then steps back and thinks, let's see how this goes. God is intimately involved in every single blade of grass growing every cry of a child. He's intimately involved in every government meeting. He's involved in everything. He's sovereign. He controls everything. And listen, let me give you some good news, because that's not necessarily good news. What if you're an enemy of His? It's not encouraging to know that God is sovereign over everything. 
But if you are his child, it is greatly encouraging to know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. More about that in a little bit. But for our outline this morning, just to give you some markers as we kind of follow through uh, a chapter and a half, uh, I want to give you this outline, three stages in the unfolding of God's providence. So we're going to see three stages in the unfolding of God's providence in giving Israel a new king. And then after that, after we spent some time in 1100 BC, we're going to jump to present day and we're going to look at three truths to keep in our mind for our everyday lives. So three truths that this text would cause us to, to believe or respond to. So let's look first at these three stages in the unfolding of God's providence. Notice first we find an everyday mission, just a normal everyday task that needs to be done. Verse 1 of chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So right away, there's an introduction. We haven't got into what this everyday mission is, this everyday task is. We just hear of an introduction. We hear again, as we often do in the book of 1 Samuel, about the tribe of Benjamin. Now again, I told you that Samuel, this book of 1 Samuel, comes in the time of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes and that did not go well. But one of the most disappointing and um, pathetic tribes in the book of Judges is the tribe of Benjamin. And yet here again, we have the tribe of Benjamin before us. So this tribe of bad reputation is again introduced, and evidently there's a man, a wealthy man named Kish, and he's got a son. So bad reputation with this tribe, but all of a sudden in that tribe, uh, the author of Samuel, the God himself, actually holds up for us someone who's very handsome. He actually repeats it twice. He's really handsome, and he's tall. I don't know if he was dark, probably so, tall, dark, and handsome, okay? This is who we're introduced to, this man named Saul. Now, we come to the everyday problem. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalish, Shalisha, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So he's going from, from village to village all throughout the tribe of Benjamin, and he can't find these donkeys that are lost. And then apparently the search is coming to an end. Verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuf, that rings a bell, that's where Samuel's family was from. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Saul's ready to be thrown in the towel. Dad's going to be more worried about us than the donkeys. But he said to him, the servant said to Saul, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. 
Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul is ready to throw in the towel, can't find these donkeys. Father's going to be worried about us more than the donkeys, as he, you can almost picture him starting to head back home. And the servant says, hold on, there's a man of God, there's a seer, that term meaning one who sees what God is doing. There's, there's a seer here, a prophet here in this land of Zuth, and Saul doesn't evidently know this prophet. The servants heard of him, but Saul doesn't. So Saul says, well, I don't have anything to give him. And the servant says, I do. So Saul says, okay, let's go and talk to him. Verse 11, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has just come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on a high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now what's going on here? Uh, remember the servant has told, Sam, or told Saul, there's a seer here, there's a prophet here, let's go talk to him. So they're heading into the city. They see these, these ladies, um, young ladies coming out to draw water, probably enamored with this handsome guy, giggling to one another as the handsome guy, I don't know, I'm just picturing something like that. They come up to these ladies, is the seer here, and he just got here. And he's got a sacrifice to offer on the high place. Normally in the Old Testament, you hear high place and you think, oh no, there's a sacrifice to a foreign god. But evidently in 1 Samuel, because Shiloh has been decimated by the Philistines, remember Samuel has set up a new place of worship temporarily at Ramah, and so that was evidently on a hill. So we don't get any indication that this is a bad sacrifice probably a sacrifice to the one true and living God. But Samuel has come to town, and he's the one that oversees not just the sacrifice, but also the meal that people share afterwards. And so they're saying, yes, Samuel's here. He's going to lead in the sacrifice. He's going to preside over this meal, bless the meal. And so, yeah, go and find him. Verse 15, we get a parenthesis in the story. So if you write in your Bible, uh, you can put parentheses between verses 15 to 17. This is where we kind of go behind the curtain and we see how God's working. So before, all we know is this story, lost donkeys, and uh, Saul's never heard of Samuel, but the servants has, and so I think Samuel lives over here, let's go talk to him, and now all of a sudden, let we step back for a moment, and we kind of rewind the tape to the day before where we understand God communicated something about this to Samuel. Look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because of their cry, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So right there, that answers the question, why were the donkeys lost? According to Saul's dad, or Saul or the servant, it could have been because one of those servants, that guy over there, left the gate open, which could be true, but 
What's the bigger reason the donkeys were lost? Because God was going to see to it that Saul met Samuel. Because Saul was going to make Samuel a king. That, that's helpful for our own lives. Why did I not get the doctor's appointment that I thought I was going to get? Well, there could be a human reason. The receptionist made a mistake. But God's hands are in everything. God's in control of everything. We see that here in these parentheses in verses 15 to 17. Notice also, we can't miss this, if you just plopped in, like if you're a visitor today, you're plopping in with us to 1 Samuel, but we've been studying it for a couple months now. So if you just plop in here, you think, okay, God's going to save His people. All right. And you might even think His people are probably on good terms with Him right now. Well, no. Actually, last chapter, God Himself told Samuel, they're asking for a king because they're rejecting me. Remember that? Don't forget that. They've rejected God in asking for a king like this to protect them from the other nations. And yet here, God tells Samuel, this is the guy, the guy that you're going to meet tomorrow is the guy that I want you to anoint to be prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines because I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Please don't miss this. The people want something other than what God's giving them. And He's still gracious to His people. Do not miss that. That is not just the God of 1 Samuel 9. It's the God of November 14, 2021. He loves His people. He's faithful to His people. His people sin, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That is the character of God doesn't mean that His people aren't going to be given commands. They're not going to be disciplined because of their sin. They're going to be, be jerked back, if you will, and to remember His goodness and to worship Him again. But He cares for them. Whether they're in exile because of their sin or whether they're defeating the Philistines, He always cares for His people. What a gracious provider God is, even when we don't deserve it. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. <clears throat> For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and tell, I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago. Don't set your mind on them, for they've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? So he's telling Saul, who is... Who is the person Israel's looking for right now? The answer is a king. Israel's looking for a king. And Saul knows that. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite? So, so Saul's giving him this, or Samuel's giving this idea that, that you're the one that Israel's going to be looking for. You're going to be the king. And, and Saul rightly says, I'm from Benjamin. I'm not from one of the noble tribes. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all clans in the tribe of Benjamin? So not just do I come from a, 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 a kind of scourged or, or, or tribe of bad reputation. I come from like the least of the clans of that tribe. Why then have you spoken to me in this way? It's a good question. Verse 22, then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. That's curious. 
Saul's probably thinking, why in the world am I sitting at the head of this table? I was just looking for donkeys. I come from a nobody tribe, a nobody clan. I am quite handsome. I mean, really handsome. <laughs> Saul, may, Saul may be puzzled as to why he's sitting here. Verse 23, and Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave of you, which I said to you, put it aside. So, Earlier, Samuel had told the cook, hey, put this best portion aside. I don't know why, but right here I picture those turkey legs at Disneyland. You know, those big, giant, like, no real fat, I mean, just meat. Samuel's kept this great portion of meat for Saul, this guest of honor. Why Saul? Why this guy? Verse 24, so the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul, set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you, eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you may eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. This is the next morning. Samuel hosted him. He slept on the roof, which is where you want to sleep. That's where the breeze comes. It's, where it's comfortable. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, this is in the morning, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. So tell him to go ahead. When he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. I've got to tell you more about what God said. Tell your servant to go on ahead. I've got to tell you something. Now, we come to the end of chapter 9, and, and what have we seen here? We've just seen an everyday problem, lost donkeys. And in the middle, we hear about this, this interaction, this communication between God and Samuel. And then we're brought into the story, aha, there's something going on here. And then we see the rest of the story play out. But it's God working in an everyday way. Again, all Saul knows is lost donkeys and somehow I'm sitting at the head of this table. What an interesting last few days I've had. God's up to something. He's always doing something. Let's look next. Point number two, an extraordinary prediction. An extraordinary prediction or an extraordinary set of predictions, if you will. There are three of them in verse 10 or chapter 10. Chapter 10, 1 through 9. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you, that the Lord has anointed you to be the prince of his heritage. So Samuel takes the oil and anoints Saul. The anointing of oil was a sign that God was pouring out his power, his spirit. We'll see that later. His spirit on someone for a particular task. And so Samuel anoints the head of Saul with oil. Again, this guy that was just looking for dad's donkeys, this guy from Benjamin, this guy from this nowhere clan, this guy is the one that God has chosen. And Samuel says, here's the proof. I mean, don't just take my word for it. Here's the proof. You're going to see some things happen. <laughs> Verse 2, chapter 10. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Here's the second thing that's going to happen, Saul. 
Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, and you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Here's the third thing that's going to happen. I mean, Samuel's not just saying, this isn't like fortune cookie prophecy. You will have a good day soon. It's not that type of thing. He's being very specific about what's going to happen. Again, verse 5, after that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. These are extraordinary predictions that Samuel's making. These three things are going to happen. Maybe just one of them happening might not be such a big deal, but all three of them happening in consecutive order. The last one ending with the fact that Saul's going to be changed. It's just quite an extraordinary prediction. So Saul has these things told him. God is working, and he's going to confirm it to Saul. Before we move on to the third, third point, I want to focus you back to verse 1 in chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. Now, would Saul have military defeats? Yes, he would. And the people needed that. This was a, this was a day and age different than ours. There's still international conflict today, but, but this they were constantly threatened, especially the people of God, constantly threatened by their surrounding enemies. Constantly threatened by their surrounding enemies who were seeking to take their land, kill their children, all sorts of things like that. There's a constant threat, and the people are nervous about that threat. That's why they asked for a king. And here, Samuel's telling Saul, as he's anointing him, that he's going to be the one to protect this people, God's people. And again, would Saul do that? Certainly he would. Would he do it perfectly? No. Would he be the final savior that these people need? No. Saul, like any other man, even great man, would die. He wouldn't be the one to eternally protect the people of God. It's no wonder, again, as you know your Bible, you, you know that, well, there's a coming king, there's a perfect king, but we take that so for granted. Imagine just knowing this right now just having all your hopes in Saul, and then going on through his life and finding great disappointment. And as we'll see later on in 1 Samuel, well, now God's choosing a king after his own heart. David, okay, David's the one we can finally and forever count on. Nope. There's one coming in the line of David who ultimately and finally rescues his people from their enemies. In fact, the New Testament starts with the fact that there's a new king coming in David's line. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, 
links Jesus to David. Matthew, a book about the kingship of Jesus. The New Testament starts with this reality, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And unlike Saul, he wasn't afraid. Unlike David, he didn't struggle with his own sinful sinful proclivities. Unlike David, unlike Saul, unlike any other man or woman or child ever, he is the perfect king. He literally lived 2,000 years ago. He literally obeyed his parents in every single way. He literally died to rescue his people, died for their sin. He literally rose again, and he's literally been raised to the right hand of the Father, and he is the one that is called in Scripture the King of Kings. This is the one who came to rescue his people. What do you need rescue from? Ultimately, you need rescue from your alienation from God. You need rescue from your sin. You need rescue from your guilt. Jesus Christ is that king. Saul just points to him. David just points to him. All the other kings, Josiah, they just point to Jesus. We are now on the other side of Jesus' life on earth. We know that Jesus is the perfect king that is needed. So we can't just read 1 Samuel without reminding ourselves of that fact. Jesus is who you need. And I don't know the state of everyone's soul in this room, but do you live under the kingship of Jesus? Do you bow the knee to Him? Those who bow the knee to Him will be rescued by Him. Those who try to fight Him will be destroyed, judged for eternity. Here's the offer before you. God offers you the King to save you. That's what the Bible points to this rescuing king. Revelation 1 says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He's he's alive. And the ruler of the kings on earth. I mean, you think the North Korean leader is strong. You think different leaders are strong in the history of the United States. You think different kings in England are strong. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He never dies. He's always alive now. He's always ruling. And notice about this king in Revelation 1. It's not just that he rules, but hear these words. He's the one who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. It's not just, this, just that this king is a ruler and a judge. This king is a savior who died for his people, who died for you. What a king! What a king. We're coming up on Christmas season, my favorite Christmas song, O Holy Night. This this verse gets me every time. He knows our need. To our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king, before him lowly bent. Behold your king. Jesus Christ, who knows your weakness, knows your sin, and still came to die for you. Have you beheld your King? I pray that you would. I hope that you would. Behold Him as King, dying King, resurrected King, ruling King. So we continue on in the account of 1 Samuel. We see how God's working out His providential plan. We see an everyday mission. We see an extraordinary prediction. And finally, we see an empowered king. 
an empowered king. Chapter 10, verses 10 to 16. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? You almost picture a tisk there. Is Saul among the prophets too? Well, yeah, right now he is. And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Normally prophets came in a line from a father who was a prophet, and then the son was a prophet, not here. Who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? It's something they started saying. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Prophesying, relating divine communication to the people. Now remember, we are meant, as we read 1 Samuel, to kind of be struck with the idea that Saul hasn't met Samuel before. I mean, so far from 1 Samuel 1, we've been introduced to Samuel. This is the man of God who speaks for God. This is the one that Israel needs to listen to. And then we learned in 1 Samuel that Samuel wasn't just a judge like in a certain region of Israel. He actually went all throughout Israel. Israel knew Samuel. And then we come to 1 Samuel 9 and Saul doesn't know him. That's really odd. And Saul evidently wasn't a man who spoke forth the Word of God normally in his life. I mean, he's doing that around his hometown, and people are going like, did Saul get religion now? Did Saul go off and looking for donkeys, and all of a sudden now he's this great man of God? Actually, that's what happened. The Spirit of God came upon him. Rather amazing, isn't it? This is what happened. And you know what this is a precursor to, right? This is a precursor to the new birth. Ezekiel 36 prophesying that in the new covenant people would receive, get this, not just a new standard of rules, not just a new community to be in, they would receive a new heart. From the inside out, they would now live to worship God, and that's what's happened to all Christians who've been saved. They've been converted, the heart of stone has been taken out, they've been given a heart of flesh, and you look back and people who knew you before are like, whoa, what happened to Frank? Jesus Christ changed my life. Jesus Christ changes a man and a woman and a child. Whoever comes to Him is born again by the Spirit of God. Here, the Spirit of God changes Saul to equip him with what he needs to be the king of Israel. This is rather amazing. It started with two lost donkeys. It started with just some ordinary things happening, and now the Spirit of God is powerful in the life of Saul. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where'd you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Why? (laughs) I mean, don't you lead with that? He told us the donkeys were found. Oh, and I'm going to be king also. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say it. Why? Don't know. But as I told you last week, it's very interesting. When Samuel is called to give people bad news, and he's he's called to say something that might not be received well, he says it. He's a man of God. Here, Saul hides the fact that he's king. Is there anything bad or malicious here? Don't know. Just find it curious that Samuel does what God has said, and here Saul's keeping something back. 
Maybe it's just because it's time, it's not time for Israel to know who the king is. Maybe that's what it is. But it is rather interesting as you read 1 Samuel, why didn't he tell him that? Not time yet. God will reveal it. Uncle will know who Saul is. But clearly, as we go through these chapters, clearly we see God in charge, don't we? God is accomplishing His purposes. He's doing it in ordinary, everyday ways and also some rather amazing ways through amazing predictions. God is in control of the whole thing. What are some lessons that we can take from this? Let's look at three lessons to learn about the providence of God, okay? Uh, and I, and just, I want to remind you here, and I get this from 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, tells the story about the grumbling Israelites, and it's not meant to be just a history lesson for the people in Corinth 2,000 years ago in the first century. He's not just saying, hey, 2,000 years ago, the Israelites grumbled. They did this. Isn't that interesting to you? All right, be on your way. No, no, the Old Testament is written for our benefit. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us. All. Old Testament, New Testament. And I'll remind you of that fact today. Don't say, why are we going through 1 Samuel? What, what, what good does this have for us? Well, God actually says that all Scripture is profitable for us, to equip us for every good work. There are things to learn here. 1 Corinthians 10 actually says, consider those people who are grumbling, don't be like them. It's a picture of what you shouldn't do as a follower of Christ now. They grumbled against God. You don't grumble against God. You trust Him. So here, there, the Bible is always relevant. It's amazing to me, even this week, started on Monday thinking, all right, Lord, this is a message about Your providence. How does this benefit our people? And then as the week goes by, almost every single interaction I've had with people in this church, almost every single uh, situation that's arisen, you know what I think? We need a reminder about the providence of God. We need a reminder about the fact that He is involved in everything. You worry about what this government's going to do, that government's going to do, this court's going to do, He's in control. You worry about what's going to happen to your loved one, you worry about the illness in your home, you worry about the finances in your home, you worry about your job, what's going to happen, God is in control. And over and over again, He reminds His people that He is their provision and He's for them. Look at the birds of the air. Look what they have. You are much more important to your Father than the birds of the air are. Look at the lilies. They're clothed. You are much more important to your Father than the lilies are. We need to remember that God is not just providentially working, but He providentially works for His people. He cares for His people. I'll even remind you in this passage, in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 9, He's heard His people's cry. They haven't responded to Him like they should, but He still has heard their cry. And He's going to see to it that He brings them a leader, and Saul will have victories for the people. So, there's much for us to learn about the providence of God this is an absolutely important passage for us to understand this week. Here's the first lesson I would say. For us in this church, know that God works thoroughly through ordinary means. God works thoroughly through ordinary means. Again, it started with the donkeys, and God was going to see to it that because of those donkeys, 
the future king of Israel would meet the prophet of Israel, Samuel. We, we are often amazed by miracles, right? And, and amazing things happening. But, and that's good. Be amazed at this miracle working God. But don't forget the fact that it's not as if he's not doing anything and then all of a sudden he does a miracle. Wow. No, he's at work in everyday ways. The, the fact that everyday normal things happen is because he is making those things happening. He is the sustainer of the world and the creator of the world, according to Colossians 1. He's in control of the miraculous in our eyes and also just the ordinary. But even the ordinary is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? He rules everything. Atoms, cells, everything. We, again, are amazed by miracles to understand that God works through the ordinary means. We have a phrase in in uh, contemporary Christianity, it's, it's not a biblical phrase, it's just one of those things that we like to turn into a bumper sticker. Um, it's a God thing. Not a bad phrase. It's a God thing. And, and we use it for amazing circumstances. You know, I was in a hurry, I was trying to do my Christmas shopping, I had to go and get over to this thing, and then, you know, I would think, oh, I got to go into Fry's right now, busiest time of the day, and I pulled in the parking lot, parking spot right there, front row. You know what it was? You guessed it. It was a God thing. But you do know if you were busy and running around, had so many things to do, and you pulled in a fries parking lot at the busiest time of day, and you got there, and the only spot in the parking lot was the furthest one out in the corner, you know what that would be called? You're getting it. You're getting it. That's a God thing, too. Maybe He is teaching you to be more thoughtful of your time and to leave home earlier. Maybe you just need to walk a little further. <laughs> I'll remind you what John Piper says when God's doing one thing, or one thing, he's doing a thousand things. There are reasons God does everything. Everything's a God thing. Everything's a God thing. Second lesson for us, God works to bring people the message of salvation. God providentially works to bring people the message of salvation. You see this throughout the Scriptures. You see God sing to it that the message of salvation gets to them in providential, everyday ways. He actually connects His Son's coming to the lives of people. I want, I want you to see this. Um, you can turn there if you like or just listen as I read it. Acts 2, Acts 2, 23 to 24. Look at the way God providentially allowed people to hear of Christ. Christ has been crucified. He's risen again. And he's ascended, and now Jews from all over the Palestinian area and even beyond that are in Jerusalem for a festival? Huh. What interesting timing. Christ has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit's come upon the apostles, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that came upon Saul. Holy Spirit's come upon the apostles, and it just so happens that Jews from everywhere are in Jerusalem. I wonder what the apostles are going to say. Well, they start preaching of Christ. Listen to Acts 2, starting in verse 22. <coughs> Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to, now notice these words, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Okay, so, so get, I'm mid-sentence here, but let's stop for a moment. The apostles are preaching about Jesus of Nazareth. Talk about a nobody place, a nowhere place, like Benjamin, Nazareth, nowhere. But Jesus of Nazareth, this man named Jesus from that village, a man attested to you by God, put forward to you, announced to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, delivered up. What's that language for? Delivered over to execution. So, God, so right now we know that God's at work in a number of ways and was in Jesus' life. God was at work in bringing Jesus before the people. They noticed Jesus. Not everybody can make bread for thousands out of just a few loaves. Not everybody can heal the blind. Actually, just the Messiah can do that. But God put him forth, pointed to his son and said, look at the works he's doing. This man is different. Pay attention to this man. And then God's plan was to deliver his son up to death. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But that doesn't free us from human responsibility, does it? This one delivered over you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The author of life can't be held by death. And God made that known. Now he goes on to preach this message about Jesus Christ. Now fast forward to verse 37. Now when they heard this, and they hear also, by the way, that he's going to rule as king. Okay, that's in the sermon as well. But when they hear about him being the resurrected king, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And this is the question of the ages. This is the question that you should be asking. This is the question that everybody on planet earth right now, 2021, should be asking. What do I do with Jesus? If he was brought from heaven to earth, if he was verified and received credibility by the works that he did, and then if he was put to the cross, executed and raised up by God, if God was doing all that in Jesus, if God saw to it that Jesus went through all that, then what is my response? Good question. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, not just Saul, not just the apostles, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God works in human history, in everyday life, to bring the gospel message about His Son to people who are in need. Let me, let me bring this real close to home. You are here right now. You're here. What are you hearing about right now? Not about an election. You're not hearing about the front pages of the newspaper. You're not hearing about football. You'll get to that in a few minutes. You're not hearing about any of that. What are you hearing about right now? Jesus Christ has been given to you for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can live forever with God. And you cannot earn God's favor. Jesus Christ came to rescue you and to give you an acceptable state before God. 
God will look at you as if you live the life of Jesus and bring you home to where you belong. You can have eternal life and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. That's what you're hearing right now. And is that coincidence? God saw to it that this was what you would hear today. This is what we all need, Jesus Christ. And God has seen to it to teach you the good news about His Son even this morning. And if you're watching this in five years on YouTube, you're hearing the message of Jesus Christ. This is the message to respond to. This is the person to respond to. This is the King that you need. Third lesson for us about providence. God uses disappointments in His people's lives for their good. We need this today. God uses disappointments in His people's lives for their good. I remind you of Joseph. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? Because his brothers. What's the bigger truth? Because God was doing something. When Joseph was sold into slavery, he was going to bring the whole nation of Israel with him to Egypt, and they would flourish and grow and thrive in Egypt. They didn't know that when he was sold into slavery. And in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph makes it very clear he knows that what his brothers did to him was really because God had a plan. God was in control of this whole thing. God was providentially working in even the selling of him in slavery. God providentially left him in jail. God providentially gave him the opportunities in Egypt that he had. God raised him up to second command in Egypt. God knew what he was doing. God was in control of it all. Did Was it uncomfortable and difficult and challenging for Joseph in the middle of all that? Absolutely. But God never stopped being Joseph's God. He was doing something. I'll remind you of the people of God in the book of Habakkuk. People of God dishonoring the Lord. Prophet Habakkuk kind of standing in between God and these people saying, these people are wicked. God, do something. God says, okay, I'll do something. You know that wicked army that you hate? I'm going to send them after my people. Habakkuk thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I meant. No, no, you're not going to believe what I do. And God used that wicked people to bring his people back to him, to restore them. And God brought about good from that discipline. God uses disappointments in his people's lives for their good. You look at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, and you think of the disciples in the upper room after he's been executed, hiding, scared, frustrated. Think of Peter. Think of guilty Peter. He betrayed his, his Lord, the one he loved, and then his Lord died. He couldn't make it right with Jesus. But God was doing something. God was doing something. Even in their disappointment, he would raise Jesus. He would restore himself to Peter, Jesus would. God's doing something. Think of the, the, the fancy rug that I talked about earlier in the sermon. You see it on one side and you think, what in the world? This is a mess. This is hard. This is difficult. Someone sees the other side. So, someone's doing something. Just wait and see. We throw this verse out all the time, maybe one of the most famous Christian verses, but please hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, do you believe that today, suffering Christian? 
I hope you do. Again, your job is in jeopardy, your health is poor, your marriage is on the rocks, your life plans aren't working like you thought they would. But God is not just a God of providence, He's a God of providence who benefits His people by His providence. I love this quote from William Blakey. He said, God silently, secretly, often slowly, yet surely accomplishes His purposes. God silently, secretly, often slowly, yet surely accomplishes His purposes. Let me say it this way. It might not feel like it, but the reality is if you're in Christ, God is working right now for your good. It might not feel like it, but it is the truth. I'll close with a song lyric that came to my mind this week. Maybe it's okay if I'm not okay, because the one who holds the world is holding on to me. God, the one who holds on to the world, also holds on to his people. He accomplishes his work, his providence, for his glory and for their good. Let's pray together. Father, it's good to come to a passage this week that shows that you are in control. It's also good to come to a passage this week that shows that you still hear the cries of your people. As we prayed earlier, Father, and you know this to be true, there are in this room angry hearts, apathetic hearts, discouraged hearts, joyful hearts, hopeful hearts, questioning hearts. Pray that you would use your word and the display of your character to minister to each of those hearts in the ways that only you can. And pray that we would see how you work all things for your glory and your good. And that would give all of us in this room this morning a sense of calm as we go out and live in this world which cannot be counted on. Pray that we would count on you in a renewed way this week. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.